So why don't you pull out your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 1. This Tuesday, I was on a walk with our daughter, Willa. She was in the stroller. It was right before the sun went down, and that's a real period of activity in our neighborhood. Lots of people running, lots of people walking, lots of people walking their dogs just out with their families and friends. And so we're walking along, and I see that I'm getting ready to pass a lady. We're going to cross paths with the lady who's walking her dog, which is, I always just overthink that moment because I don't know what to say when somebody's running. Like, do you say anything? Do you acknowledge them? Are you rude if you don't acknowledge them? Maybe you're rude if you do because they're just so focused. It's just, this is an awkward moment. And a lot of people in our neighborhood go to church with us. So I'm always thinking, I got to say something because what if they're one of our parishioners and the pastor didn't say hello to them? They're going to abandon the church and maybe abandon the faith totally because... They really needed some encouragement in that moment. And, and so I'm always overthinking that. And so this lady is coming with her dog and, and here Willa and I are. And I'm already stressed out about it because I don't know what to say. Do I just give her the head nod in a polite way? So I settled on good evening. I'm just going to say good evening to her. And I'm going to do it like at a medium pace, not like good evening or good evening, but just like a good evening, you know, something kind of nice. And, and so... Here we come, and, and we're getting ready, and, and the moment's coming, and I open my mouth, and I say, Abrada. <laughs> Just like that. That's word for word. Abrada is what came out of my mouth. We were making eye contact in the moment, because I think both of us were getting ready to seize it with a good evening, and then she just darted her eyes away immediately at that point. I'm not sure if she goes to church with us. I'm sure she does not now, though, after that <laughs> encounter. That pastor, he's not, not that smart. Um, thankfully, Will is only a year old, so she's not going to remember the moment at all. Uh, because you know what makes something significant is two things. Uh, right timing and right substance. In life, that's a good combination. Right timing and right substance. I had the right timing, zero substance. We're going to take our microscope and we're going to focus down onto the Advent story of Joseph this morning. And what we are going to see in your listening guide, Joseph was a righteous man at the right moment. Right timing, right substance. Joseph was a righteous man at the right moment. We've already read this passage this morning, so we won't take time to read it again. But here's the summary of what we see about Joseph and learn about him from these few short verses. First, he was just. Second, he was unwilling to shame, according to verse 19. Third, he took time to consider, verse 20. And number four, he obeyed even in the face of personal costs, verse 24. Look what it says in verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together. Now, I outlined this in a message a few weeks ago about Mary, but we'll review it again this morning. The Jewish marriage process came in two steps. It was a two-staged marriage. First, the betrothal or engagement was stage one of the two-stage Jewish marriage process. Stage one was a formal witnessed agreement to be married. 
and then a financial exchange. It was a formal agreement. So the families were involved. In their culture in the first century, you could get married very, very young, uh, 14, 15 years old. If the couple was very young, the more involved their families. As the older the couple got, the less involved their families would be, but their families would definitely be involved. And the families would agree to this marriage. And it was binding. It was official. And then there was a financial stage uh, exchange. Stage two, about a year later, the marriage was finalized with a ceremony. So very similar to what we do in our culture. So they're in stage one and they were considered legally married. That's why in verse 19, It says, and her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So it refers to her already as uh, as married to her husband, Joseph. And it says that he was going to divorce her. So they were still betrothed. They were engaged, but a divorce was necessary. He would have had to present her with a legal certificate of divorce, but he wants to do it quietly. He doesn't want to bring her to court. He wants to settle out of court. And why did he want to do that? Because he was a just man, it says. And you're listening, God, to be just is not sinless perfection, but one who is law-abiding, upright in character, and generally obedient and faithful to God's commands. Joseph is described as just. It's a synonym of righteous and the Advent stories, there's, there's not very many of them, but in the small number we have, four people are referred to in this way. Joseph here is called just or righteous. Zechariah and Elizabeth in Luke chapter one are called righteous. And Simeon in Luke chapter two is called righteous when Mary and Joseph come to present the baby Jesus in the temple to be dedicated. You know, one of Satan's traps is that he tries to convince us that our righteousness is a prison that we have confined ourselves into. That all of the exciting things are happening out in the world and we are missing out on it because we are trying to choose righteousness. That all the fun stuff, all the good stuff, all the adventure, all of the thrill, all the action, it's happening outside there, but we've made ourselves unavailable to it because of righteousness. And righteousness becomes for us like an overprotective mother, where we become the child looking out through the window at all the neighbor kids playing in the street, but somehow we are confined to the house. And I'm sure mom has a good reason. I'm sure God has a good reason for keeping us in the house, but we feel like we are on the outside looking in. But what these advents tell us and the thread of righteousness running through the characters is righteousness is not a prison that you are confined to. It's actually an opportunity that the greatest adventure and action and thrill that is happening on planet earth is available to those who make themselves available to God. And that's what your righteousness does. It says, I wanna be the right person at the right time. It might be that God has passed by you in different seasons of your life and he wanted to pull you in to what would have been maybe potentially the most thrilling adventure of your life. 
But because you and I weren't choosing righteousness in that season, we didn't hear, we weren't paying attention, we missed the opportunity. And Satan wants to trick us, he wants to trap us, he wants to convince us that the really great life is outside of what we're experiencing now. But what these Advent stories tell us is if you choose righteousness, you are choosing a front row seat to God's plan on planet Earth. It says that Joseph, in verse 19, was unwilling to put her to shame. See, he believes in this moment that she's been unfaithful to him. If that's ever happened to you, you know the great sense of uh, pain and embarrassment that you experience when you realize that someone you loved and cared about had been unfaithful to you. It's not just the, the person who did the wrong that ends up feeling bad. The person who is wronged somehow, sometimes, often feels more ashamed than the person who actually should be ashamed of themselves. Joseph would have had every right to put her to shame. In fact, you see in your listening guide, Joseph could have proven his zeal if he had branded her with public shame. In fact, in his culture, if he had brought her before the magistrate, if he had kind of paraded her through the town and said, look at what she's done to me. She has cheated on me. She stepped out on me. I was faithful to her. She was unfaithful to me. He might have actually gotten a lot of credit from his culture. They might have said, man, look how Joseph prizes the law. Look at how he wants to do God's will. But he said he was unwilling to do that would most of us, I think, would have. He was probably embarrassed that she had cheated on him. And wouldn't it be like most of us to then say, well, you embarrass me, I'm gonna embarrass you. Eye for eye and tooth for tooth. You make me look like a fool, I'm gonna make you look like a fool. Which, listen, sometimes the righteous and the upright, we are the most guilty at that. Sometimes uprightness, when we lose focus, turns into self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is essentially when you and I give ourselves credit for what God has done in us. So it's by God's grace that we order our lives appropriately, but then you and I start thinking, well, yeah, but I'm the one who wakes up at six in the morning to read my Bible before I go to work, and, and I'm the, the one who you know says no to HBO when all of my other friends are saying yes to HBO. I mean, God didn't do that. He didn't unsubscribe to that service. I'm the one who you know looks away when something pops up on my computer. We start giving ourselves uh, credit for th- those things, and we start feeling self-righteous. And shame is the weapon of choice for the self-righteous. So you and I know today that we're self-righteous if we've made anyone else feel bad about what they are doing or are not doing lately. Then self-righteousness has taken hold of you and you're using shame as a weapon. Why do we do it? We do it because when we shame people, it makes us feel taller. Makes us feel better about ourselves. Makes us appear better. I remember in college, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine. We were talking about the good old days of sports back when we were on the varsity team, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we started swapping stories. And honestly, he had some better stories than I did. And and so I started to take my stories that had a seed of truth and then layer them in some untruth. You ever done that? It's like, well, the colonel 
uh, is there. The heart of the story was true. All the flesh was not true. And so I started doing that and I let it come out where I had exaggerated greatly and we kept on hanging out and I just started feeling really bad about it. Just really felt, felt convicted about it that I had lied to him. I mean, I was calling it an exaggeration, but really it was a lie. And so I said to him, I just interrupted the conversation. I said, hey, I gotta go back to, remember when we were talking about blah, blah, blah. Well, I told you this, or I made you, I let you think that it was this and the reality was this is what it was. And I apologize, I shouldn't have done that. One day I'm gonna struggle with what to say to people as they cross me when I'm walking in my neighborhood. So I'm an idiot, you know. <laughs> I apologize. And he was like, that, yeah, that's great. I mean, who cares? It wasn't, it wasn't offensive to him. And he just said, no problem, no problem. Well, later that night, we were all kind of meeting up back as a group of friends, and I was one of the last ones there, and, and he was already there. And when I walked into the house, our whole group of friends was sitting in the living room, and one of them brought up the story and made a joke about it. And I knew instantly that he had told all of them. He told them about my lie. He told them about my awkward apology, and they had all had a nice laugh. And I wanted to punch him in the face, number one, but I didn't think Joseph would do that, so I didn't. And then I felt a deep sense of shame. So I wanted to leave, but just that would have, I felt amplified the shame. And we've both been the person who has felt that way. We've been the shamed, and we've been the shamer. And why do we do it? Because it makes us feel taller. It makes us feel good in that moment that we were not the ones who did fill in the blank. And it makes them smaller, which is really what our flesh craves. We crave to be taller than everyone else. We crave to look over and above everyone else. And sometimes our self-righteousness, which started out as uprightness, ends up backfiring on us. We use shame as a weapon. But Joseph didn't do that. He was unwilling to shame her. Verse 20, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel had commanded him. He took his wife. Now, Joseph would have been totally justified in ending the relationship. Not one person in his village, his town, not one person in Jerusalem would he went to visit, would have condemned him for ending the relationship. You're in stage one. She's been unfaithful to you. It is a no-brainer. You don't go on and get married. And then we couldn't even accuse him of being harsh with her because it says that he was gentle with her. So we could say, yeah, you did the right thing by ending the relationship, but man, you just were, you didn't have to say that and you didn't have to do that. We can't even accuse him of doing that. So he would have been totally justified in everything that he had decided to do, to divorce, but to do it quietly because he was a just man, he would have been totally justified except for the fact that he would have been wrong because she hadn't been unfaithful to him. He didn't have all the information. You know, some of us are mad at someone right now 
And I just wondered, do we have all the information? Some of us are so angry and we're ready to send. And oh yeah, double send. And I'm gonna blind copy somebody on this for accountability. (laughs) But just because we want that person to know that that other person had done that to us. And meanwhile, I'm not just gonna blind copy one person. I'm gonna blind copy about four of my friends for purpose of prayer, of course, for the purpose of prayer. You're angry and you're frustrated and you're mad. And I just wonder if we would, like Joseph, take time to consider. Maybe we don't have all the information. Some of us are angry at God right now because we've been asking this and we need this. And and I just wonder if we would take time to consider that maybe we don't have all the information. Some of us are doubting God. You're, You're here because you're obligated to be here. You've obligated yourself. You feel like it's the right thing and you're here. But the truth is, is you're just not even sure that you believe all of this because he didn't do or he let such and such happen. And and I just wonder, maybe maybe we don't have all the information. Joseph took time to consider. And then it says he took her as as his wife. And you're listening, God. The phrase he took his wife means he publicly made Mary his wife. In verse 20, the angel says, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, which means don't shrink back, Joseph, from following through with the plan. You are on stage one. Don't shrink back from taking it to stage two. You know, it's one thing to want to do the will of God in private. And it's another thing to want to do the will of God in public. It's one thing to be passionate about God's kingdom on earth in private when it's you in prayer. And it's one thing to be filled with conviction in the privacy of your own prayer closet. And it's another thing to be filled with conviction in the public square. It's one thing to want integrity in private and it's another thing to want integrity in public. I just wonder if you would analyze, is my private passion for Jesus equal to my public passion for Jesus? Are they the same? Because that's the goal. Some people are publicly a 10, but privately a one. And some of us are John the Baptist inside our home. And we're more like Judas when we get to work. But Joseph He was not to be afraid publicly to embrace the will of God, even though it would have been a great personal cost to himself. You know, Joseph is a, his story is short. We don't know that much about him. We think that he passes away sometime after Jesus is about 12 years old, because by the time Jesus is in adulthood, we hear about Jesus's mom and brothers and sisters, but we don't hear anything about Joseph. So his story is pretty short. It is a short story of faithfulness. And what we see is he was a pivotal role player, a pivotal role player. You know what a role player is? Some of you sports fans, uh, sports fans, a role player is somebody who's not the all-star, 
They're not the best one on the team, but they play a specific but important role in helping that team to victory. I think the greatest role player in the history of sports is Robert Ory, Houston's own Robert Ory. He played for the Rockets back when many of you were just wee little babes living with your mom and dad. The Rockets won two championships and, and Robert Ory was the best role player, in my opinion, that's ever played sports. He was never an all-star. He never made an all-star team. He was never all NBA, not first team, not second team, not third team. He was uh, is not um, generally regarded ever as even the third or fourth best player on his team. And yet he played 16 NBA seasons and won seven championships. So almost half the time, that Robert Ory suited up for a season, he came home with a championship. But he was a role player. And his role on all of those teams in which he won championships was to do two things towards the end of the game. To try to get as many rebounds as possible and to go and stand in the corner behind the three-point line. And so if you go back and watch the tape of Robert Ory, you will always see him in the corner behind the three-point line. And his job was to stand there. Most of the time, Kobe Bryant was gonna take the important shot. If Kobe didn't take the shot, Shaquille O'Neal was gonna take the shot. Hakeem Olajuwon was gonna take the shot. Kenny Smith was gonna take the shot. Tim Duncan was gonna take the shot. Robert Ory's job was to stand in that corner and wait. And sometimes they would pass him the ball. And his job then was to shoot it and make it. And he probably made it more in those moments than any player who's ever played in the NBA. In fact, his nickname is Big Shot Bob, which is a pretty cool nickname as far as nicknames go. But he was a role player, but he was pivotal. He was important. And that's what Joseph was. Joseph is not the all-star of the Advent stories. He, He doesn't even get very much press and he was the dad. A pivotal role player. When we signed up to follow Jesus, we signed up to be role players. There is only one all-star in this story. There's only one hall of famer. And that's Jesus. But you and I, we can play a pivotal role with our short story of faithfulness. And a lot of days, it's just gonna feel like you're just standing behind a three-point line. Just another day, the same as the day before. And then another day, the same as the day before. And from First Chronicles 13 to the next day, First Chronicles 14, to First Chronicles 15, to First Chronicles 16. You're like, God, where are you? I thought a cloud was gonna appear. Well, maybe the clouds are gonna appear at First Chronicles 17, but probably not. This every day, standing in the spot that you're supposed to stand on. And there is gonna be a moment where the ball's gonna come to you And the question will be, will I be a righteous man at the right moment? Will I be a righteous woman at the right moment so I can play my role? Which many days feels insignificant. But in that moment, will be pivotal. This is what we learned from Joseph. And it would be good for us to practice what he's preaching to us today. Let's pray. Why don't you take a second in the spirit of prayer and just pray to God directly yourself. God, we've read your word. Our minds and our faith 
have been engaged? Is there anything specific that you want me to do after hearing and reading the scripture? God, help us to be doers of your word and not hearers only. In the name of Jesus, amen.